We are going to start today's session with a conversation with Rajiv Singh Molaris, founder and managing partner of Alma Mundi Ventures. Rajiv, welcome to the program. Good morning from Seattle and thank you. Rajiv, your name is so uh, interesting. It seems like there's a whole story in your name and in your firm's name. Do you want to start with a little bit of your background? Uh, sure, sure. I, I, I could talk for, for a long time, but in brief, obviously, the name is half Indian and the Malaris is half Spanish. I'm a, truly a, a child of the world, born in Europe, raised here in the U.S. and Europe, and have lived and worked in Asia, Europe, and the United States. And, and our firm is, is, uh, was born in Europe, and we've invested in, in both Europe and the U.S., and we can talk a bit more about that. But yes, I'm, I'm a global citizen, which I think more and more of us in the entrepreneurial world are as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, tell us about the charter and the investment thesis of Alma Mundi Ventures. Right. So we are we are a fund that's uh, just over $110 million in our core fund. And then we have a separate insure tech fund, which is about $90 million. So all told, about $200 million uh, in, uh, in capital. Um, we focus on the Spanish diaspora, um, or as we, as we say in the U.S., Hispanic entrepreneurs. Um, we are mostly B2B, so we've done some B2C, but mostly B2B. Um, we generally focus on, on uh, Series A, um, and I, I know that the definition of Series A is an elastic definition, depending on where you are, but late seed, early A, you know, valuations that are between five and 40 million. Um, and, and we initially put in investments of between one and two, eventually going to four and five if, as we do follow on uh, rounds. And what, um, so when you say Spanish diaspora, is it uh, entrepreneurs with companies in the U.S. but are of Spanish or Hispanic origin or are, can they also be other continents or countries? Um, are, uh, exactly right. Uh, our first two funds, which are essentially closed now, but we are in the process of, of structuring a new fund, are for Spanish or Hispanic entrepreneurs uh, based in Europe or based here in the U.S., and we have eight companies here in the U.S., uh, our new fund may have a slightly broader mandate, but we are we're working on that right now. So, talk about the companies you've invested in. Give us a flavor of uh, you know what they are and what where did they come from? How did you encounter them? What did you see in them that led you to write that first check? Right. So, so I I, I think the um, the way I would uh, cut into that is. Um, you know, we, we have been fortunate, uh, not unlike uh, many communities, there are networks within networks. And so word of mouth becomes very important um, in, yeah. in terms of, of seeing deals. And uh, I think that that's one advice I would give to entrepreneurs. No, don't only look for venture capitalists, but talk to other entrepreneurs and get, get them to talk about who they've worked with, what funds they've uh, contacted, what funds they've spoken to. And um, that's one of the better ways, frankly, of, of reaching the right funds or the funds where there may be a better fit with your project. And that's how we found the most interesting deals by word of mouth. 
you know, reaching out to companies once you've done some research, it's the, the yield on that, meaning the willingness to talk is lower. Uh, so referrals is really important. Um, uh, what we generally have, uh, as I say, focused is on, on B2B companies. Our expertise is more in that space. And I can talk about some of the challenges we see in, in scaling B2B companies, but uh, we, we, we look for companies where we can help. Uh, we are, I'd call ourselves activist investors in the sense of we'd like to roll up our sleeves and get to work. We're not simply gonna put money in and then wish you the best and give me a call if you need help, no. Uh, I'm going to be there to help you in a constructive, in a supportive, and in a positive way. But ultimately, you, the entrepreneur, are the one responsible for the firm. The venture capitalist can't do that, uh, can't run the place for you. So it gives you, I hope, a little bit of a, of a flavor uh, of, of the kind, well, how we get to, to the companies. And we've been very fortunate of seeing thousands of companies literally over the last five years. And, uh, Talk about some of the companies themselves. Yeah, so so um, you know we just let me let me start with one that just uh, was sold. We uh, about two months ago, a firm that we invested in about five and a half years ago in San Francisco, founded by an immigrant uh, from Spain, um, called Returnly, uh, just got sold to uh, the buy now pay later company called The Firm, which is founded by Max Lefkin and it was sold for $300 million. Um, the story from, it, it started in 2013, 14, we invested in 2015 in a convertible note, a small initial amount. What the company does is, as all of you know, e-commerce is booming now. Most, most people unfortunately buy stuff that they wanna return. For merchants other than the big ones, in the US being Amazon and Walmart, the return process is a pain point and so what this company does is essentially uh, enable through software the return process. And when the company started, it was just software and they had a hypothesis that credit at that point of return might be an interesting play. As time went on, it became the most important part of the business and ultimately is, is the reason why it was bought by a firm. So it's, it's the valuations when we went in were reasonably small, under 10 million, and it sold five years at 300 million. And so it was an extraordinarily interesting journey. Uh, it had its ups and downs, its moments of real challenge, like any company will have, um, and um, and ultimately success, a good uh, you know wealth creation for everybody, the entrepreneurs, the the, the, the venture capitalists, everybody. Um, so that was the company founded in the U.S. in San Francisco, or was it, yes, it started elsewhere and came to the U.S.? No, it was it was founded here. Interestingly, uh, the bulk of the technical team was based in Europe, um, and so we we've seen a lot of of, um, of companies that are started here, and the technical team is in 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 Spain or in India or in other places where there are extraordinarily high quality talent. That with you know a lot of late nights, if you're in the U.S., can be managed, uh, and it it just gives a competitive edge in stretching the runway, if you will, on on scaling the company. We've also worked with companies in Europe that have then come to the U.S. as the business grows in the U.S. So um, this is kind of an interesting dynamic that we see a lot of, especially in the context of Indian entrepreneurs using India as the development. Um, location and then coming to market here. Over the years, actually, 
um, you know, a lot of these companies are getting started in India, and then if they're going for this global technology or global market kind of play, they want to move to the U.S., but they do the product development, do some validation, get the few early customers, and then come to the U.S. with a, a ready product often. This is a, this is a dynamic we see a, a lot of in our uh, in the Indian diaspora and the Indian, uh, you know, in the India Silicon Valley bridge, this activity is very prevalent. I'm actually very happy to see that you are also focusing on this dynamic on Europe because, um, you know, Europe, the Europe Silicon Valley bridge was less well built. The Israel Silicon Valley bridge was very well built. The um, India Silicon Valley bridge was very well built. And right now it doesn't even matter. Silicon Valley doesn't matter as much. It's more like the U.S. market for if you're doing B2B, if you're trying to sell to B2B customers, um, the U.S. market, especially in enterprise or ended market, the U.S. market is one of the most prized markets. So it's great to see that you're doing that in the Europe-U.S. corridor. Yeah. No, and, and I, I, th I think your, your observation is entirely right. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is whether it's Silicon Valley or Austin or Boston or New York, the U.S. market and the buyers here are uh, among the most sophisticated. And if you can sell here, yeah. I mean, as, as the song goes, you can sell anywhere. And, you know, there, therein lies, I mean, I th you know, one observation I would make about B2B and the entrepreneurs, um, understanding the buying process of, of, of corporates, whether those are midsize or larger corporates, is, is really one of the coefficients of success that can't be underestimated. You may have the greatest software you may have the greatest product or the combination of, of you know product service but if you don't understand the dynamics of how they, the the purchase decision is made you're going to get stuck that's right we spend a lot of time on that topic in the in our accelerator is exactly how to set up a repeatable sales process and and how to not sell not once or twice but 100 times and 1000 times and what are the dynamics of where you are seeing uh, the European teams? Is it all in Spain that you're working with, or are you seeing other geographies in Europe? No, we're, we're seeing, uh, we have uh, investments in the UK, we have a couple in Switzerland, and um, uh, you know, a little bit distributed across, uh, across okay. Europe, but mostly in Spain. The, you know, I, I think the dynamics are roughly similar to the what they are here in the U.S. The trends are are the same. Perhaps they lag a little bit in terms of of the innovation. Um, certainly on the financial side, you know, the the SPAC boom, for instance, is only now beginning to uh, uh, to get to to Europe. Um, but in terms of of what's what's interesting, what people are are doing startups in, it's it's almost the same as in in the U.S. And you know, if I, if you want, I can talk a little bit about what I see as the key trends and. Um, yes, that would be great. That was one of my questions. What do you see? What trends do you see in your deal flow? What trends do you see? You know, what what trends, uh, you know, uh, inform your investment thesis? Yep, uh, and and I'm very happy to the the. I mean, as I said, we are a fund that's mostly B2B and also generalist. We don't have either an industry focus or a uh, you know horizontal focus on a sub process. You know, whether it's payments or whatever marketing, we we we're quite broad. So we we see a lot, and there are certain areas, for instance, you know, the pharma and biotech, which are extraordinarily 
um, hot right now. We don't invest in that, but we do invest in digital health. And I see that that is one that is um, really quite interesting right now and accelerated since the pandemic. Everything around telehealth or, or um, you know, kind of remote uh, diagnostics and remote uh, healthcare provision uh, in the U.S. and in Europe is is gaining a lot of attention because of well, we still have a debate as to how the shift that's occurred during the last year will remain afterwards. But it's clear that that people are getting much more comfortable in getting healthcare um, services via uh, you know digital platforms. And specifically, one of the things we're seeing in the U.S. and in Europe is mental health, for instance, as, as a growing investment thesis, uh, providing mental health services um, uh, through these digital platforms. So uh, there's a lot of activity. We've invested in, in a couple of platforms. One of them is in New York called Rubicon MD, founded by an immigrant, founded by minority uh, founders, and, and now you know, scaling really nicely uh, with investments from some of the largest funds and, and healthcare players here in the United States, very focused on the US but uh, providing um, uh, uh, um, specialist consults to general um, uh, practitioners. So digital health is one, e-commerce is another one. Um, as, as you know, in March and April of last year, when the pandemic hit, I think there was a lot of anxiety about what's gonna happen. Um, but of course, very quickly, it became obvious that e-commerce was just perhaps slowed down a little bit and then just accelerated extraordinarily quickly. And so that secular trend, which was underway, just picked up speed. And I think anything associated with e-commerce uh, continues to be very interesting. We don't focus on the front end, we focus on the back end. The Returnly story I mentioned is an example. There's a lot of you know, um, focus as well on BNPL, the buy now, pay later phenomenon. Um, and uh, e-commerce in general is another one that, that we see. And then the last one I'll mention is ESG, which is you know this uh, this impact investing and you know that's a broad term and so there's there's green technologies but there's also um you know it, more broader kind of societal impact uh and and are you contributing back so for instance we've we've invested in one hardware company called Submare which is essentially these are what's called immersion cooling for the data center um the data centers are growing in in they need more compute power than they ever did the problem with data centers is that they generate an extraordinary amount of heat and they consume a lot of electricity. So they need to be cooled, which just consumes more electricity, et cetera. So is there a way to reduce their footprint, reduce their energy consumptions? One of the one of the potential technologies is immersion cooling. Essentially, um, you know, think of it as, as big boxes with liquid in which you, you stick the servers in and it, the servers are cooled by liquid instead of big fans and requiring huge real estate. Uh, they're based in, uh, this company is based in Europe and uh, is selling largely to what's called a hyperscaler. So we, we, we generally like those kinds of companies. We've invested in one called Clarity AI, which does ESG scoring for funds. More and more investors care about that ESG component. Um, and this company based in New York and, and, and Spain focuses on scoring uh, funds and, and helping investors decide where, where they channel their money. So those are three specific. Another one that we also see, I mean, again, none of these are new. They're just continuing with momentum is, is business process automation. Uh, some people, you know, kind of RPA. Um, what we like about this is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about machine learning and, even, and AI 
um, and uh, applications of that to the enterprise space um, and, and applications of that to industrial processes. We're still in the infant stages of that, but it is definitely picking up. Um, and we, we, we like to invest selectively in that in companies that, that have very practical experience in using machine learning and eventually using deep learning AI, if you will, um, for improving these these processes that are in the enterprise and in manufacturing uh, settings. So, Rajiv, I'm going to go back to your uh, discussion on digital health. It's also uh, we have exactly the same um, principle. We don't do biosciences, life sciences, or pharma, but we do digital health. Now, um, of course, digital health is is a big field, and there are lots of sub pockets in there. Um, the telehealth phenomenon, as you point out, is uh, has been hugely accelerated globally, uh, and and I think in the Western world, one of the gating items with telehealth was that insurance companies were not really as proactive in paying for telehealth, and they are now. I think the insurance companies have altered their policies, and that has given telehealth a big boost. And in in countries where healthcare systems are already immature, telehealth is, a, is an opportunity to leapfrog all that. So I think that a lot of that is happening. We see a lot of that is that happening in India. And um, I haven't really looked into telehealth in Latin America, but I imagine that's also coming up in Latin America. Um, but when it comes to some of the patient monitoring stuff, which is a very active category, or applications of information technology, especially the AI algorithm kind of stuff, machine learning and so forth, in drug discovery. How do you view the role of the FDA or equivalent, you know, regulatory body in Europe or elsewhere? Yeah, um, it, good question, and I'll be very candid. I am not an expert on FDA and, and the equivalent in Europe. Having said that, um, you know, we, we we are working, for instance, with a company that, that um, has developed a technology for the diagnosis of sleep apnea, which is a condition that, that can be quite debilitating mm -hmm. if you have it. And today, I'll give you a quick background here. In today's world, if you, if you are told by your primary care physician that you might have sleep apnea, you need to go to a clinic and you need to get strapped up with a big mask and a big machine. Um, so what these guys, uh, if out of Imperial College, a, a female professor named Esther Rodriguez uh, developed a little technology where you put a, a quarter size plastic device on your, on your neck and while you sleep it reads the, the breathing signals, downloads it on your, on your phone and in the morning you have your diagnosis. It's uh, much more accurate than existing technologies and you can well imagine much cheaper to implement because you don't need to go anywhere, you just put a little plastic thing with a sensor in it's there. It's a wearable. It's a wearable, exactly. Um, but it has, to, it Does will be approved. Does require regulatory approval? Yes, yes. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not an invasive device, but it does, and we are going through the FDA approval process here in the United States. It's been approved in Europe uh, by the regulators. Um, and, and, you know, again, it's it's a non-invasive device, so the burden of proof is much lower than it would be if it were an implant or something that requires, uh, well, a more invasive device. I, I mean, the experience so far is, you know, the, the FDA and the regulator in Europe are looking for innovative solutions. It, it's very clear 
that um, they have more and more experience and you can directly see the correlation with you know if they have some experience with these kinds of technologies it, it's a much easier process i i helped one company that's working with exosomes which is life sciences uh, which is still in, in the infant stage, but you can see that there are over 300 drugs in the pipeline at the FDA, and and so it becomes easier. Um, so I'm not suggesting that it's uh, a very quick process, but I think that as as we see more and more technologies, whether those are diagnostic or the core uh, biopharma, um, uh, you know, the the FDA, the FDA, the regulators are learning. And, and therefore they're becoming more agile as well, is, is what I would say. So um, I'm going to probe a little bit on this topic, um, something very specific. So in this company that you have invested in, um, it sounds like they have already got regulatory approval in Europe, so they are selling, and they're still waiting for regulatory approval in the U.S. What is, as an investor, how do you, um, how do you view regulatory risk? Um, did this company come to you with the regulatory approval in Europe? So if, you know, if it delays in the U.S., it still doesn't hinder their selling and revenue generating in the Europe. What, how, do you, how do you evaluate the regulatory risk issue? Yeah, this is, I mean, it's, yeah, the time, exactly. They, I, I, again, I, I am not an expert on the regulatory, but, you know, the, what we saw in this company was a very novel technology that was underpinned by an incredibly uh, qualified, you know, academic. Um, and so there was, we had little doubt uh, that, you know, as we say in the U.S., what it said on, it, it does what it says on the box, meaning, you know, the claims that it patented um, would work technically. Uh, the question then would be just going through the process, whereas, you know, there are some, some, some t technologies, whether they're wearable or invasive, where there's a hypothesis that it's going to do this, you have to prove that it does that, and then you have to prove it to the regulator through, you know, uh, a medical study. In our case, the technology, we were pretty sure the technology worked. All we needed to do was demonstrate it in a medical trial in the UK, which we did with patients, and the, the, the results turned out to be as we thought, or in fact, better than we thought. Um, so, you know, we, well, that doesn't mean that we will invest in any uh, technology that requires FDA or, or European agency approvals because it's a long process and, and there are many twists and turns and, and um, it's, it, it, you do need some very specialized uh, skills and, and knowledge, accumulated knowledge of that. So unless we see something where it's, you know, I'll say it, we believe it's a no brainer that the underlying technology works we're generally not going to invest in, and in, in this case, it was a pretty unique opportunity for us to invest. Yeah, so I think there is a, for those of you who are listening to this conversation and are actually considering or working on uh, digital health ventures that have need for some sort of an approval process, you're going to find, you're going to need to find investors who are comfortable taking that regulatory risk and have some skills and experience and expertise in handling those because um, it is a reality in, in the kind, in those kinds of, you know, monitoring systems or anything that is even a little bit intrusive or invasive, that is a reality and it does require a certain kind of investor who has that expertise. You know, always I talk about investor-entrepreneur fit, right? Every investor comes to a fund 
with an investment thesis. And as an entrepreneur, your entrepreneurship thesis and the investor's investment thesis have to match up, otherwise there will be no funding. So keep that in mind as you are you know, looking for your investor for the round that you're